Hello, my name is Anthony. You are listening to the Ton of Questions podcast. The goal here is to answer questions for those who are curious and to spark curiosity in the minds of those who are not, who may be listening. Have you got a question? Let me know. Let's get started. Welcome to the Ton of Questions podcast. This is episode two. I am Anthony and I'll be your host today. I started thinking about new vehicles that have been manufactured since 2018 or so and later. How much control does a manufacturer have over those vehicles? How much data do the computers on those vehicles collect? These are just a few of the questions that we will tackle in this episode. What's changed since the early 1900s and the inception of the automobile compared to current day? Vehicles on the road today range from antiques to bleeding-edge computers with wheels. Back in the early days of the automobile, the driver would need to turn a crank that was connected directly to the drive shaft of the engine. This would provide the initial inertia necessary for the internal combustion engine to start. This process required quite the amount of strength, and the process presented fear in the eyes of the this person starting the vehicle about having a broken wrist or forearm if not done correctly. In 1912, the Cadillac Model 30 AD was released and it featured an electric start where a direct current or DC motor was powered by a battery controlled by the starting switch that the driver would be able to start from the convenience of sitting in the driver's seat. That motor then continued to turn when the engine started and produced electricity to power lights, charge the starting battery, and a few other things. This incredible improvement is credited to Charles Kettering, who was the patent holder for this and at least 140 other patents. These older cars still had systems considered archaic by today's standards. A distributor cap turned by a shaft from the engine causing it to rotate and touch electrical contacts that coincided with a cylinder in the engine, allowing a high voltage pulse of electricity to each spark plug to combust the gasoline air mixture that was in the chamber. No electronics, just a coil to jack up the voltage and a way to make and break an electrical contact quickly over and over and over again. A carburetor to mix the gasoline and air before it got packed down into the cylinder to explode with the spark created from the electrical contact that was just made. Now there was still getting the gasoline and oxygen mixture correct, the choke set properly to help on initial startup, and many other things that back then were marvels of engineering, but today archaic. Let's take a big jump in time. My first car was a 1984 Chevrolet Monte Carlo with a 4.3 liter fuel injected engine. Obviously, no having to hand crank the engine to get started. No carburetor, no choke. All those things and more were replaced by a computer chip. With this new spin on the way engines were running, auto mechanics had to go back to the books if they wanted to stay current with all of the electrical and electronic systems that were being added to the increasingly electronic and computerized systems necessary to support the engines that powered our vehicles. I remember when it was daunting to most drivers that a single blown fuse of only a 5 amp rating could have you stuck parked on the side of the road or in a parking lot, otherwise stranded if you didn't have a replacement fuse of the same rating. 
those in the know gave strong warnings to not be tempted to stick any old fuse in that 5-amp fuse block because you could burn up the computer and cost yourself a truckload of cash to fix that. Things like oxygen sensors and map air sensors all and all manner of other electronics were put in charge of our engines and enabled them to run smoothly and, quite honestly, kick out more power. There was a new addition with all this computerization called the check engine light. This check engine light was your only alert that something was off. When that light came on, one didn't know if fuel efficiency was going to drop through the floor, whether the engine was going to stop running, or whether you could ignore it because it was going to mysteriously disappear as mysteriously as it came on in the first place. To find out what caused it, you'd have to go to an automotive repair place to have them check the codes. Nowadays, one can buy a code tester for a modest price and figure out all of that stuff without paying for it. Because of the availability of these devices, most auto repair shops changed the way they did business. Now, providing a free diagnostic check for trouble lights in the hope of earning the business of the vehicle owner. Automobile technology has skyrocketed these days and a technical background is extremely important in that field. There were many whiz-bang options that came with all of this technology. A very cool thing that significantly increases vehicle safety is the Tire Pressure Monitoring System, or TPMS for short. With a quick jump ahead, we zoomed quickly past the ability of the automobile to sense its tire pressure and alert the driver to hazardous conditions to vehicles that can drive themselves down the parkway or even parallel park in tight spots. Cameras in front. And then back, remote monitoring, remote starting, and warning of the vehicle, which is pretty handy when you live in a place like I do, with winter temps that routinely drop to negative double digits in the winter. Is there a drawback to all of this technology, though? When a device, and this can be any device actually, can be controlled remotely, it opens the question of who can control that device remotely. The proper owner via the internet, okay, that's a good start. But what happens when a bad guy comes into play? Data security discussions often involve three players. And their names are frequently called Albert or somebody whose name starts with the letter A. And Bob or somebody whose name starts with B. And Mallory. Mallory is always a bad guy or gal for some reason. Mallory. Malicious those types of connotations. So Albert sends a message to Bob, but Mallory intercepts it. And when she does, she either simply reads it, and thus she knows the secret message that Albert was sending to Bob, or she may delete it and prevent the delivery of that message. Another twist, even more insidious, would be that she's able to modify the message and allow that message to get over to Bob with false information in it. Now let's talk about our vehicles. One day a coworker and I left work at the same time. As we were walking out to our vehicles, I mentioned how cold it was outside and that I wasn't excited about scraping the ice off my windshield. Moments later, as we came upon our cars, the engine of her car was purring and the inside of her car was warm and the windshield was completely de-iced. Mine, on the other hand, was cold, dark, and had an inch of ice and snow on top of it. What was different between the two? 
she had remote start on her vehicle and mine does not. What does it take to have remote start? Well, an app on her phone, the internet, and the ability for her vehicle to listen to her app via the internet, which also involves a cellular link. In this case, she is Albert via the app on her phone. The car is Bob. And as long as Albert and Bob are able to communicate without interference, everything is wonderful and she gets to sit down into a warm vehicle and enjoy an automatically de-iced windshield. And I have to do it the old-fashioned way. I get out there and scrape. But what if Mallory gets involved between the app and the car? Could it result in a vehicle accident? Could it result in a stolen vehicle? Oh, well, that can't happen. Or can it? Well, no, it can't because it's encrypted and there's this security feature and that security feature. Okay, well... What if the app that was installed on your phone only gives a small percentage of its capability? There's a back door that allows a malicious attacker to get in and do other things. What if Mallory works at the company that produces that app? What if the company is owned by Mallory? Well, one might say that I'm just being too cautious. I'm open to that. I'll scrape my windshield and get in my cold truck and wait for it to heat up. Let's move forward in our timeline to current day. The headlines on the internet read, Tesla bars owner from superchargers after insurance mistakenly lists car as totaled. What this means is that the owner could no longer use Tesla's extensive charging network. There were, as I understand, only two other ways to charge a Tesla vehicle. One being a method that requires an electrical installation at home to have already been installed. This installation uses 240 volt AC wiring, which would absolutely require a professional electrician to install. And that's if the home is capable of supporting that type of installation from its electrical infrastructure perspective. This installation allows for a charge rate of, get this, about 30 miles of range per hour charge. So in order for a drive of 300 miles, it would take 10 hours of charging at that location in order to fill your gas tank, if you will. But it's not really a gas tank, it's a battery. Another option is, if this is even an option, would be to plug the electric vehicle into a 110-volt outlet using the supplied adapter cable but this only allows for a charge rate of about two to three miles of range per hour charge. So without existing infrastructure already set up, you'd be limited to a charge rate of, like I said, two to three miles of range per hour of charging. So essentially, the owner of this vehicle is pretty much grounded from operating the vehicle that she owns by Tesla, the manufacturer. Why would Tesla do something like this is the next question. Well. It was an honest mistake to start with, but it didn't get handled in a way that an honest mistake should have been handled. What do I mean by that? Well, the short version of the story that I got, and you can read about it in more detail over at carscoops.com, is that there was a data entry mistake between the vehicle owner's insurance company and Carfax. 
It seems the vehicle owner had been in a minor fender bender, but somehow it had been documented by the insurance carrier in the Carfax system as having been totaled. In response to that electric vehicle with a massive battery to power it being listed as totaled, Tesla, out of concern for safety, digitally disabled the vehicle from being charged in their supercharging network. Let me repeat that. Tesla, out of concern for safety, digitally disabled the vehicle from being charged at their supercharging network. This is where the extent of the honest mistake portion of this story ends. So far, we are in the land of honest mistake. Data entry errors happen. The vehicle owner figured out what went sideways, got the vehicle issue corrected with the insurance company and with Carfax. However, could not rectify the situation with Tesla. I don't want to get negative with Tesla. I'll say only this. The vehicle owner tried in many ways to get the situation corrected. But according to the article, Tesla was non-responsive, and so the vehicle owner sat, grounded in her own home, vehicle in the garage, essentially unable to charge, other than at a snail's pace, like we described before, where it would take a full day of charging to cover what some might drive in an hour or two. The owner got the situation resolved, but was only able to do so after getting a local news channel to assist her, and that was successful likely due to its large audience. So my point on this is that a data entry mistake started the ball rolling on this vehicle being grounded through technology, digitally disabled. Well, if Tesla believed that there was a safety issue, it was right to disconnect the vehicle from the network. Sure, no argument, but there was no issue. The car was Albert, and the supercharger network was Bob. Mallory got involved because of an error. Now I want to shift gears a little bit. I guess there is a saying in the automobile software world that it's likely your next modern vehicle will have more lines of code written for it than the space shuttle ever did. Hmm. Software. Written by programming experts, and nowadays maybe AI-powered, possibly AI-written, probably AI-enhanced, or maybe coded the old-fashioned way, written by coders who have had a keyboard in front of them since they were four years old. What happens when there's a bug in that software? What happens if there's an oversight? Back in the 1960s, computing resources were scarce and including extra bits to utilize a four-digit year was not even considered. Fast forward to the 90s, specifically the late 90s, what was all the buzz? Y2K. A good chunk of society was unsure what was going to happen when the clock struck midnight on that New Year's Eve going into New Year's Day. At the time, I was working in a tech position and the large majority of my working life in 1999 was consumed with year 2000 or Y2K preparations. I was working in Portland, Oregon. The Portland public safety community was watching Auckland, New Zealand with a microscope as we approached midnight. Why? Well, Auckland hit the year 2000 before Portland did, 
And it just so happened that Auckland, New Zealand had the same emergency management software and equipment that Portland, Oregon did. If things went south in Auckland, New Zealand, and Portland would know about it ahead of time and might be able to do something about it. Everyone was scared. And this all came because of an oversight, because back in the 60s, again, when computing resources were quite scarce, nobody saw the need to use a four-digit year, as in 1964 or 1965. A simple 64 or a simple 65 would do. Now, how does this have anything to do with cars and software? Well, it's very applicable. What if there's something in all the programming that we are utilizing at this point has some kind of comparison to what was going on back in the 60s with the two-digit year being fine, with no earthly idea about how significant that was going to be when we hit the year 2000? Well, Anthony, what should we do? Should we just stay back in the Stone Ages? I've heard this kind of response about a lot of things, especially with AI, but that's a subject for another day. I'm not necessarily saying that we should stay in the Stone Ages, although you might get that impression. What I'm saying is that we all need to be aware of and educated about what is going on, which is the point of this podcast. In my introduction, I talk about my background and education. My formal training is military-based. If we were to say it in college speak, I'd say that my education in college speak, I'd say degree, but I don't have a college degree, so I'm not going to say that. My education is in nuclear reactor engineering and operations, and I have a minor in college speak. I have a minor in radiological controls and another minor in adult education. I don't want to be misleading, so I'll just say it again. I do not have a college degree. I am a Navy nuclear power school graduate, and I was trained to operate and supervise the operation of Navy nuclear reactors on board three different submarines. No degree. I've also supervised many major projects involving intense radiological operations and evolutions. Now, I'm an instructional trainer in the nuclear and radiological world. Why am I saying this? Well, I'm taking the long way to give an understanding of wisdom that I'm about to share. We have something in the industrial and nuclear safety community called hazard mitigation in another term called hazard elimination. And there's another newer term called hazard appreciation. What does all this mean? And what does it have to do with me and my automobile? Well, hazard elimination means exactly what it sounds like. A hazard is eliminated, removed, gotten rid of, such that that particular hazard no longer exists. Hazard mitigation means that a hazard is controlled in such a way that it cannot hurt us. It's still there, but it cannot hurt us. Imagine a giant, big old, hairy, poisonous spider creeping across the table. It's coming straight towards you as if it knows you're there. This is the most poisonous spider in the known scientific world. Mmm. Tastes like chicken. 
That was an example of elimination. I smashed it with my hand. Now, I don't recommend smashing such a poisonous thing with your bare hand, but you get the idea in this example. Now, let's change the circumstance. That spider is walking on the table, coming directly toward you, but this time, this time you take a big glass jar and you place that jar upside down on top of the spider. The spider is now confined to the circumference of that jar, and the hazard in this case has been mitigated. It's still there, but it cannot cause any harm to anyone. As one of my pastors says when he's preaching a sermon, so? So what? So this. When there's a risk, we can either eliminate the risk, mitigate the risk, or another option I haven't mentioned is roll the dice and take a chance. There are times in life, but never nuclear power, there are times in life where we do just have to roll the dice and take a chance. That is never the case, like I said, in the nuclear world or industrial safety or any of that. And in my opinion, none of us should ever take that approach to our digital safety in life either. So, so what? So this. When it comes to having the benefits of tech, remote start on your vehicle, tracking the number of steps you've taken today towards your physical activity goal, saving your banking app passwords electronically on your cell phone, or for some people, making the choice to not even use an app for their banking or anything financial because of their level of digital caution, having our home security systems connected to the internet, so many things that bring us real or sometimes perceived safety, convenience, fun, don't even get me started on installing any old game app on your phone just to have fun or pass the time. All of these things bring some level of risk. And what did we say are the three approaches to risk? Eliminate the risk, mitigate the risk, or hey, roll the dice and take a chance. What was the outcome for the Tesla owner and her vehicle? She was stranded due to a situation that started out with a data entry error and then got caught in a maze of customer service. Or another way to say that would be she got caught in a maze of customer non-service and couldn't really use her vehicle. In the same way, the digital pioneers of the 1960s didn't give consideration to the importance of having a four-digit year, which wouldn't be realized until late 1990s and cause a tech hysteria that would ensue in the business world. In the same way, smoking cigarettes was looked at in the United States back in the early 1900s, no thought was given to the risk of lung cancer that would soon be realized. Some may come to see the technology advances as something other than risk. Others, like myself, see those technology advances in a, as a significant risk that needs to have built-in mitigations that are reliable, but only as long as the need to take the risk with the various mitigations assumed, is needful. In other words, not for a game app to pass the time while you're sitting waiting in line for some doctor's appointment. What we are talking about here is hazard appreciation. People have different approaches to what is and what is not a hazard. But I'm not done yet. 
We talked about modern cars containing lines of code. More lines of code than the space shuttle would ever have. Well, here's a question to consider. Who owns that code? Who owns the code? What do we all have to accept each time we install an application on our phone or a program on our computer? You're probably thinking the EULA, the End User License Agreement. That EULA always says something to the effect of, hey, you are licensed to use this software with all of the usual caveats, but you do not own the software. So the next logical progression is this. If your new car has more lines of code than the space shuttle, and the only way the car drives down the road is because of that code, if you do not own the code, who owns your vehicle? The answer is, somebody else does. And it doesn't really matter who does, other than the fact is that you don't. That company could be the most trusted company on the planet. That company could even be owned by your very own grandmother who loves you. What if the company is bought out? What if they go defunct? Or if they have a rogue player join them, a new hire that they don't catch on the background check? Or what if the whole company goes rogue? Then what? What if that company is taken over by an owner based in a communist country? Companies in communist countries are literally obligated to their governments to act for and in behalf of the benefit of that foreign government. If your device contains data that would be helpful to, let's say, the Chinese government, and you're using an app that records and plays back really fun videos, that company in charge of that app and all of the access that comes with it is legally obligated to provide whatever data the government asks for. And when we get right down to it, Due to all of the digital rights management agreements, we might own the device, whatever that device is, again, phone, car, tablet, whatever, blender nowadays. We do not really own it. We cannot modify the code if we are capable of it, at least not without putting ourselves in a legal bind with the rights holders. Well, but Anthony, we're talking about cars here. What kind of data are you talking about? I'm talking about the lines of code. Remember more, more code written for a modern car than ever was for the space shuttle? Now, I'm no Tesla aficionado. I'm not anti-Tesla. I'm not pro-Tesla. I really don't have a dog in that race other than I'm no fan of electric vehicles. In fact, I've never even been in a Tesla. With that disclaimer, what I'll say is that it seems that Tesla is in the forefront of everyone's minds because of the level of media attention that it constantly gets. A simple internet search on your part will give you the depth and breadth of this, but I'll just touch quickly on a few things that caught my eye as I was preparing for this episode. Cars collect an astounding amount of information about the driver, its occupants, driving history, driving habits. Tesla 
I learned has an inward-facing camera and records audio as well. The justification? Well, that camera can detect where the driver is looking at and remind him, or her, to keep their eyes on the road. Well, but you can turn that device off. Well, can you? It might look like it's off, but how do you really know? Again, let's talk Mallory. Or again, let's talk the insurance company made a mistake and told Carfax that the car was totaled, and then wham. We can't charge on Tesla's supercharging network anymore. And there is also another angle. There's always the scenario of the owner is behind on that loan payment. Whoever's in control of the car can shut the car down, turn off the air conditioning, make an annoying beep sound that sounds every 30 seconds or maybe more frequently depending on how far overdue the payment is. Well, that last bit was just added by me. It was just something that popped in my head just because. But the rest of it has all happened. What about if law enforcement feels the need to turn your vehicle off? Going back to the Tesla, they also have outward-facing cameras too. So when you see a Tesla driving down the road in your neighborhood, smile because you're on yet one more camera. What if you connect your cell phone to the vehicle? Well, there's a plethora of data that flows through your vehicle then. Like I mentioned, driving habits, health conditions. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. Health conditions. Some vehicles have health monitoring systems in the vehicle because, you know, safety. Hey, if the driver is impaired, we need to know so that we can shut it down. Well, so all I need to do is just not purchase a newer, modern vehicle. And then I can avoid all that, right? Well, you might think so, but mm, there's opportunities where you can insert that capability on your own self. There are aftermarket additions that one can have installed in their vehicles that allow for remote start and all of that kind of thing. From what I know about those, they're not nearly as obtrusive and not so fully integrated that if things went sour that that device couldn't be removed easily enough. This is all assuming that the vehicle owner installed that tech. But what happens when the vehicle seller installs the tech. What happens if that installation is unknown to the vehicle buyer? Now we're entering some pretty dicey space. There's an interesting article, interesting in a bad way, on a website called stateline.org. The article is written by an author named Elaine S. Povich. It was written back in November 2018. You can find it for yourself. In that article, the author talks about a young lady who had some financial challenges and was left stranded because the dealership had the ability to remotely disable the vehicle when she was behind on her payments. That lender triggered a kill switch remotely without the vehicle owner's knowledge. Now, I can see the motivation of the dealership if they're also the financier of the loan and they want to protect their investment, so they initiate the kill switch. But I can only see that 
as being allowable and ethical when the buyer has full consent and understanding. Beyond that, and it's sketch at best, potentially criminal at worst, and the liability issues that come into play could be astronomical. Now, in defense of the lenders, protecting their loan, their investment, they're saying that it's more convenient for the purchaser. There's no repossession, there's no repo man, no boot gets installed on the car so it's not a visible, um, embarrassing event. Instant restoration of the ability to drive the moment that the payment is made. But still, my opinion, if that is an unknown to the vehicle owner and not agreed to in advance, then it's wrong. There are a number of states that have outlawed this practice or tactic as it's referred to, in fact. I found another very good resource on the subject of kill switches over at Palermo Law Group, P-A-L-E-R-M-O-L-A-W-G-R-O-U-P.com, called What You Need to Know About the Vehicle Kill Switch Law. And it gives a whole bunch of information that I'll let you check out for yourself. But what I do want to mention from this resource is the section where they talk about a reference to a 2,700-page infrastructure bill. I did a little bit of digging and found Public Law 117-58, and in that public law, Section 24220 talks about requirements that vehicles put on the market after 2026 must have passive monitoring systems to detect drivers under the influence and give the ability to stop the vehicle from operating. A little bit more digging on the internet, and I came across a USA Today article. It seems that USA Today seems to have a hard spot with the term kill switch and back door. But that is what this law is all about. The takeaway here is that we need to know that when we are dealing with technology, it might all go well. Albert and Bob might have their complete conversation, not be listened to or interfered with, and that's a good day. But we also need to be aware that Mallory can step in at any time. Mallory doesn't have to be malicious. Mallory could just be in the form of a mistake, a data entry error, a lack of future vision, as we saw with the Y2K debacle. When you approach things, decide what your level of hazard appreciation is. Then decide on whether your approach will be elimination, mitigation, or, hey, let's roll the dice and see what happens. All right, I think I'm going to call this a wrap. With that, I'm going to close out and wish you a wonderful rest of your day or night, as the case may be. This has been an episode of the Ton of Questions podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. Head on over to www.tonofquestions.com. Leave me a speak pipe message to share your thoughts. It's as simple as leaving a voicemail. Thanks for listening and come back soon.